You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, We're starting a new uh, four-part message series today. We're calling Friendship 101. Uh, Back in 2018, the World Health Organization declared loneliness to be a major health concern worldwide. Then just a year later, 2019, the United Kingdom uh, appointed its first Minister of Loneliness. So this is a cabinet-level position called the Minister of Loneliness to address the problem of loneliness in that nation. And then this year, May 2nd, our own U.S. Surgeon General, so that's the top health official in our nation, took the rare step of going public and declaring loneliness to be a new epidemic in our nation. Now, the reason for all this is whatever research you look at it, it continues to show that the levels of social isolation are at an all-time high in particularly modern cultures around the world. And it turns out this isn't just an emotional issue. It it turns out loneliness has been linked to physical problems like uh, heart disease and dementia and even early death. So that's why the U.S. Surgeon General declared it to be an epidemic. Now, there's all kinds of reasons that have been proposed for why there is this rise in loneliness and the increase in this problem. Some point to the transient nature of our world. Uh, People are moving a lot, which makes it harder for us to put down roots, uh, build real community, and make long-lasting friends. Others blame it on the rise of of media that uh, watch, really, as people watch more media, it robs us of the time that is needed to build friendships. A lot of people point to social media and because it tends to promote uh, conflict and comparison more than it does actual real connection. But whatever the reason are, it's probably a mixture of these and others, the combined effect of these factors has degraded, uh, particularly in our culture, uh, the knowledge about how do you develop friendships? How, how does this work? How can I build good friendships? So we're going to go back to the basics. We're calling this Friendship 101. And what we're going to do is we're going to address four attitudes that strengthen relationships, that develop friendships. Now, here at Seabreeze, we have uh, seven hard attitudes we refer to that uh, shapes the culture of our church. These are seven descriptions out of the New Testament portion of the Bible that describes the kind of relationships and the kind of church that God wants us to aim towards. And we're going to look at the first four of these relationships from the angle of friendship. What do these tell us about how we can form good friendships? Now, good friendships don't just happen. We, we tend to think that we kind of, you know, just miraculously, mysteriously, we, we become friends or we don't become friends. Scripture tells us that, that we need to pay more attention and, and be more active in our friendship, cho- choosing and developing. Here's what it says in Proverbs 12, 26. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way the wicked leads them astray. What this is saying is that if you want to do what is right, if you want to live a life that is marked more by doing what is right than doing what is wrong, that's what the word righteous means, doing what is right, then you will choose and you will grow your friendships intentionally and carefully. Now, God is the one who created us as social beings with the need for connection, with the need for friendships. And as social creatures, we need good friendships to help us navigate in life. And it turns out that 
doing the right thing isn't just a personal moral decision. It is that, but it is also a companionship decision. So when you choose your friends, you choose your future. You've probably heard this, and it really turns out to be true. As we select friendships and develop friendships, we are really charting a a course for our future with those friendships. That's why we need to choose carefully and develop them carefully. You know, most of the important decisions that I've made in my life have been with the help of good friends. I mean, it was a friend that challenged me to take the risk of leaving advertising to become a pastor to do this. Actually, being a guy, it was a friend that called me a chicken, and so, of course, I had to take that there, and so I came out here to check it out, and God began to speak, and so that's the way guy friendships work. But that was a friend that kind of led to this decision. It was a friend that told me about my wife, and I would not have dated her if I hadn't had that conversation. And I could go on and on, and you could probably do the same thing. It's good friends that help us in life. Without good friends, I personally would have gotten pretty lost in life. And so it's the people that we we let into our hearts that shape the decisions we make, both the good decisions and the bad decisions. So as I said, we're going to look at the first four heart attitudes from the angle of friendship. We begin today with the first attitude, which is put the goals and interests of others above my own. Now, these these are 10 words but they really describe practically one word, and that one word is love. So why not just say love? Well, the reason we have this statement is because love has become, I refer to it as a marshmallow word in our culture. You know, it's kind of soft and gooey. Uh, It melts when it's under pressure. It kind of disappears. But in the Bible, the word love describes something much more solid than what our culture tends to think of love. It is the commitment to serve someone, and therefore this practical statement to put the goals and interests of others above my own. Now, Jesus made this very clear in John chapter 13, in verse 34. This is what he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, love itself is not a new command. When Jesus said this, God had already commanded earlier in the Bible that we are to love one another. What's new about this command that Jesus is referring to is the as I have loved you part. That's the new part. And Jesus says this right after he has washed his disciples' feet, which was a menial task that servants did in that day, and there was no servant there, so Jesus did it. And he's using this practical expression of putting their interest above his own as an example of what love really means. And then he says, this is the command. I want you to love this way. Love is is primarily the act of serving another person. Philippians 2, um, 4 through 5 is where we get this hard attitude from that we're looking at this morning, and this is what it says, each of you should look not only to your own interest. You know, that's going to happen. You don't have to choose to do that. That's just going to happen. So, but not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's going to take effort. The first one, that'll happen. The interest of others, you're going to have to think about that and be intentional on that. And in doing this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He is the one that gave us this example and said, love as I have loved you. 
So it turns out love is the essential foundation of friendship. In fact, this is what the word friends mean, or friend means. The word friend, our English word friend, comes from an old English word, uh, friand. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but what it literally means is the one who loves. So that's what the word friend means, the one who loves. This is the essence of friendship. But this, this love, this serving others kind of love, doesn't just ooze out of our hearts and out of our lives naturally. It takes effort. It has to be grown and developed. So how do you do that? That's what we're going to look at this morning. 1 Timothy 1.5 identifies three essential efforts or activities that develop this serving kind of love and therefore establishes and deepens friendships. So if, you, if you're lonely, if you're wanting to develop more friends, these are three things that you can work on that over time will develop good friendships. So this is what 1 Timothy 1.5 says. The goal of this command is love. It doesn't end there. Which comes from, so here's how you get to love. It comes from these three, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So if you want good friends, again, a friend is one who loves. If you want good friends, if you want to be a good friend, these are the three that you want to work on. If you want to be a better friend, pick one of these and start working on it, and then pick another one and start working on that. If you're struggling in a relationship, if a friendship is, is going south, run diagnostics on these three. It's probably one or maybe a few of these three that things have gotten off on. It's either a pure heart, a good conscience, or a sincere faith that has gone south that is causing the relational problem. So let's look at each of these three. First is a pure heart. And I've got a statement kind of describing what these mean. A pure heart, what, what this is saying is love grows when our agenda in the relationship is to serve. If that's our top agenda, then the relationship, the love, is going to grow. The kind of purity that this is talking about is the purity of motives. That's what a, a pure, pure heart is. You, you don't have hidden motives in your heart. Your primary desire is to help this person with no strings attached. Hidden agendas and mixed motives damage friendships because what they end up doing is they use the friendship as a means to get what they want. So maybe on the surface... What they say and what they project is, I really care about you. But hidden in their hearts, there's another agenda that's a, and I want something from you. That's an impurity of heart. And often that hidden motive is so hidden that neither you nor your friend may even recognize it or see it. That is until you get into a conflict. Whenever a conflict occurs, Motives are brought to the surface. Conflicts tend to occur whenever someone in the relationship says no to someone else. Now, either they say, no, I'm not going to help you, or I'm not going to do this, or I don't want to do that, or they behave no. In other words, they do something that blocks what someone else wants. So it's either a spoken no or an unspoken no. Now, we cannot see how pure our heart is until the light of conflict shines on it. That's what conflict is. It, it, it shines a light into our heart, and it shows, oh, there's some mixed motives here. There's some impurity here. 
Because you're usually when people have a conflict, it's either because you're not getting something you want or they're not getting something they want. And usually it's a mixture of both. And therefore, the motives are brought to the surface, as I said. Now, it is perfectly okay in a friendship to ask a friend to help you. That's perfectly fine. But if they say no, you need to be perfectly fine if your motive is one to serve them rather than to use them for something that you want. If your heart wants something more than service to them, then that friendship is, is on rocky ground. Now this verse, this 1 Timothy 1.5 verse, was written by the Apostle Paul, an early church planter, to a young pastor of a first century church. His name was Timothy. That's why the book is called 1 Timothy. And Paul is writing this chapter in part to prepare Timothy for what's going to happen in church life whenever he disappoints the people that he's leading. Whenever either he says no to someone in the church, we're not going to do that, or he behaves in such a way, or the church does some things in such a way where they don't like that. This is not right or wrong stuff. This is just, it's not going to do what I want to do. And Paul is warning him, here's what's going to happen when that occurs. They are going to accuse you of not loving them. And this is the oldest trick in the book. By oldest trick, I mean this was what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the Garden of Eden. God had said yes to everything in the Garden of Eden with one exception. There was only one no, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else in the garden was a yes from God. Yes, you can walk there. Yes, you can eat that. Yes, you can do that. One no. No, you can't eat of this fruit of the tree. And that was what they fixated on, the one no. And Satan got their minds and their hearts wrapped around this one no because he asked a question that was embedded. The, the real question was, does God really love you? Because what he's doing by saying no is he's withholding something good. God knows, Satan says, when you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. So the accusation is God's holding out on you. He doesn't really love you. And so in doing that, in agreeing with that temptation, they, and then therefore now us as their descendants, we tend to get our definition of love skewered by this lie. We think love is some kind of a deal. And so what we often carry in our hearts are these words, if you love me, you will, and then you fill in the blank. This was the first temptation. Satan said to Adam and Eve, if God really loved you, he would not say no. He'd say yes to this. And so this is what has made love so unstable. Because this makes love not a commitment to serve but a deal to arrange, where you trade something that someone else wants for something that you want. That's what a deal is. A deal is two parties that each have something that the other want, and you come up with an agreement, an exchange, by which you both get what you want in the deal. But deals are far more unstable than commitments to serve, because deals require at least two parties to fulfill their side of the deal. If only one party doesn't come through, then the deal is off. And therefore, then love is on the chopping block. But if love is a commitment to serve, that only takes one person. 
I can serve you even if you're not giving me something that I want. That's what makes love more stable. But from the very beginning, Satan wanted to change our understanding and our definition of love by questioning God's love for us and therefore questioning other people's love for us and defining love as this, if you love me, you will. And you've heard, either you've said this or you've heard this said or we all think this. If they really love me, and then you fill in the blank. But that's a deal. That's not a commitment. So the purity of heart that love requires begins where the waters of our heart first became muddy, and that is in our relationship with God. It will be impossible for you and I to work on developing a pure heart towards others without working on developing a pure heart towards God. What that means is identifying, and as we identify the deals we've made with God, tearing these deals up. When we make deals with God, what we are doing is we are elevating ourselves to his level. Again, as I said, a deal occurs when two people have something that each other needs. The problem with making a deal with God is that he doesn't, or we don't have anything that he needs. He has all kinds of things that we need, but we're not equal partners in this. And so we're not in a position to make a deal with God, but we do this all the time. And that is dangerous ground whenever we elevate ourselves and we say, okay, God, if you do this, I'll do this. And what God does at that point when you elevate yourself before him, you are setting yourself up to be humbled. And that is rarely a comfortable experience. Now, the deals that we make with God, like the deals we make with each other, are almost never written down. They're unwritten deals. They occur in our heart. They kind of muddy up our heart. In fact, we're not often aware of them until God or the person doesn't come through for us. And when we find ourselves angry, that's kind of the trigger that lets us know, okay, we are thinking there's been a breach of contract here. We're thinking that there's been a deal that both parties agreed to, and this other party, God or this person, is not coming through. That lets us know that our hearts are impure. Years ago, uh, a good friend of mine um, got a promotion and had to move out of state uh, for work. So I knew this was coming, and we talked about it, but we got together for our kind of final lunch to talk about it and say our goodbyes. And I expected at the lunch we'd pretty much hug it out. I mean, guy hug it out. We wouldn't actually hug, but we'd you know, kind of mutually talk about how we appreciate each other. But much to my surprise, it turned out to be a very difficult conversation. Because my friend came with some things that he had been wanting to say to me for years. Really criticisms of me. And as he talked, I was shocked. And then I was hurt. And then I was angry. Now, on the surface, you couldn't see that. I kept it together. I was like, oh, okay, thank you for that input. You know, he... But I walked away mad. Why? I thought we had a deal. Now, I didn't know we had a deal, but in that moment, I realized I thought we had a deal. And this was the deal. Again, it's not written out, but this is the way I would describe it. The deal was, you say nice things about me, I say nice things about you. That's the deal. I mean, I love those kind of friendships. (laughs) You compliment me, I'll compliment you. The problem is, 
That's not real love. I mean, if we can compliment each other, we should do that, but not as a condition of the friendship. And as I've reflected on that, and this was years ago, um, I thought, you know, I, I can think of several times where he tried to bring up some of these things, and it was clear that I wasn't interested. I was defensive, or I was dismissive, and he chose not to risk a conflict over this. And as I, as I look at that now, I think, you know, it, it would have been much better if my love for this friend had been more pure. And so, so we could talk about some of these hard things before he moved out of state. That would have been better. Now, we're still friends, we talk, but at a great distance, there just isn't the opportunity to see each other enough and to sit down in person which is really what's required for difficult conversations. And so God's used that experience to challenge me about, you know, being willing to let people speak into my lives and me speak into their lives. Now, we're still friends, but I missed the opportunity to go deeper because, and here's one of my struggles, I absolutely hate conflict. I don't like it. And honestly, if you like conflict, there's something wrong with you. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I don't think any of us like conflict. But conflict is the opportunity to purify your heart. I see it more and more now as an opportunity. Now, I don't go looking for it, but if it comes up, I try to remember this is an opportunity for me to see inside my heart, see what's really going on. And God is saying, there's something in there I want you to deal with. Because a conflict is an agenda collision. And at that point, I'm not getting something that I want. But if I endure in that friendship, if I listen, if I consider, if we can move forward in spite of that, then I am learning to love, to serve this other person. And my heart is being purified and the friendship is deepened. So a pure heart is the first element that love comes from. The second element is a good conscience. Now, these are kind of linked together because often something comes up in a conflict, it's because something needs to be confessed. Love grows when we are willing to admit and to confess our wrong, our sins. So the pure heart that we were just talking about, that points to the hidden agendas that, that tend to weaken love. Now we shift with a good conscience to deal with the hidden lives that also weaken friendships. Conscience is our internal guilt meter. It's where we feel bad when we've done wrong. Now, we feel guilt whenever we have agreed to live by one standard, and yet we're actually living by a different standard. God has designed our hearts, our consciences in such a way that we feel that dissonance, and we feel that in the word we call guilt. And at the point of guilt, when we are feeling bad about something that we've done or said that we shouldn't have done or said, we can do one of two things. We can either bring the wrong that we've done out into the light, admit it, and confess our sin, or we can stay hidden in the dark and we can defend ourselves. And at that point, we are deciding whether we want to serve another person 
with our love or whether we want to conceal ourselves and not serve them. Now, as with a pure heart, a good conscience also begins in our relationship with God. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 speaks of the link between this and our relationship with each other. This is the message, it says, we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. There's nothing hidden. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, we claim to have a relationship with him, and yet we're hiding stuff, we're walking in the darkness, we lie. We're fooling ourselves, and we're not living out the truth. But if we walk in the light, we admit the truth. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice for us, purifies us from all sin. Now, walking in the dark or covering up our sin, it's a friendship killer. Walking in the light, being honest as things come up that we've done wrong, is a friendship builder. Now, we tend to think of our conscience as kind of our conscience, like an independent guilt meter that all of us have. But it is not an independent guilt meter. It is a community. It is a relational guilt meter. The word itself points to the fact that it is not an independent thing. Conscience, there's two parts to that word. The C-O-N prefix is a Latin word that means together. Science comes from the Latin word scire, which means to know. So conscience literally is together we know. Together we know this is wrong. Together we know this is right. That's how a conscience is worked. What that means is our conscience is calibrated in the context of our relationships. So you decide what is true, and then you develop your friendships that agree with you. And together we know. The problem is if you calibrate it with friends who disagree with God says, then your conscience is going to get skewed. It's not going to give you an accurate reading. And that's because there is no such thing as your truth and my truth, popular statements now. That'd be like saying there's your math and my math. There is no your math or my math. There's just math. It's reality. And that's the nature of truth, whether it's physical truth or moral truth. There's just truth, and there's just math. And that's the basis, not only of science. You know, if science was always changing, then there would be no science. So that's the basis of science, but it's also the basis of conscience, conscience, together knowing. So this is how it affects our friendships. When we ask someone to forgive us, what we are saying the two of us are looking at the same standard of what is right and what is wrong, and we are agreeing together that what I just did or what I just said is wrong. That's what happens when you ask someone to forgive you. When you say, would you forgive me for lying to you in this situation? For that sentence to make any sense, what we're both agreeing is that lying is wrong. Otherwise, would you forgive me for lying? Makes no sense at all. So together, we are doing the science that says lying is wrong. And this is an essential part of building trust, because if the two of you don't agree on what is right and wrong, then you're going to have a hard time 
building a friendship that either of you can trust. This is the essential importance of a good conscience, of having it calibrated to what God says is right and wrong, and then together admitting our sin. The problem for me, and I think for many of you, is whenever I sin, it's not so much that I, I question whether what I did was wrong, is I don't want to admit it to them, to anyone. I fight my conscience. I don't want anyone to know what I think they did or what they think I did was wrong. So I try to defend myself or I try to blame other people for it. No, we all do this. And the reason is because we're afraid of the light shining on our lives because we think that true friendships are built from a pure life rather than a pure heart. We think that if someone really knows this truth about us, then the friendship is over. But a friendship built on falsehood is a temporary friendship. It's only a matter of time before the truth comes to the surface and the friendship ends, if that's what it's built on. True love comes from a pure heart, not a pure life. No one has a pure life. But a pure heart where the motive is to serve and a good conscience where I tell you what is true about me. Now, we don't tell everyone everything, but part of friendships is the opportunity for someone to know who we really are. Not everyone can know everything about us, but our friends can know more about us than other people do. And that gives us a chance to build a friendship together. It's as we admit the truth about us and we step into the light that this verse says two things occur. First of all, we have fellowship with God. There's something about telling someone else about the sin in your own life that affects our relationship with God. We can tell God, we can confess our sin to God because he knows it already. But when we tell someone else, it, it has this, this light effect that enhances our relationship with God. And it enhances our relationship with one another. We have fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with one another. So four of the most friendship-building, loving, serving words you can say are, will you forgive me? And I would recommend you add four and then fill in the blank. Would you forgive me for this? Would you forgive me for that? That will deepen friendships and trust. Lastly, a sincere faith. Love grows best with the safety net of faith in God under it. The most famous verse in the Bible, probably John 3.16, says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The challenge for us is we can't love the world. God can because he's infinite. We can't because we're finite. The world is too big or too small. We can feel emotions at a distance, but we can't love at a distance. This is why Jesus, practically talking about love, said we need to love our neighbors, not the world. God loves the world. We love our neighbors. What that means is if we're going to love, we need to be in neighbor proximity. We need to be in the same space as someone else if we are going to serve them, if we are going to love them. That's why we gather in person. If the church was just about information 
that's in the Bible, we could just tape this like we did during COVID and you could watch it at home. But we gather because if we're going to learn how to love God and love each other, we need to be in proximity with one another. But the proximity that love requires comes with a risk. To get close enough to love someone, we also have to get close enough to be hurt by someone. And there's no way of avoiding this. Whenever you give of yourself to someone, whenever you open your heart to someone, just even a little bit, you are placing a weapon in their hand. And you are saying, my heart has now got a crack and it's open, and therefore you can really hurt me. You're taking the risk that they will use your love, your serving as a weapon to hurt you. And that's a real risk. There's no denying that. Because the truth about people is that they are just like you. They're just like me. Like you and me, no one has an absolutely pure heart. No one that you relate to has only one agenda, and that is to serve you. You don't have that as your primary agenda. You're working on it, and they may be working on it, but what that means is they are going to, from time to time, try to use you for their benefit, and that's going to hurt. No one has a pristine conscience. They may not even know the wrong that they are doing. So the question then is, why would you trust anyone? Why not play it safe and hide behind the walls of whatever kind of isolation, whether it's spatial isolation or whether it's relational isolation where you just kind of keep people at a distance? Why not just play it safe? Well, because you cannot love at a distance. So we're put in this great juxtaposition where we need the connection. We need to love and be loved, but it's a risk. So we need a reason to trust, to take this risk. So why would you trust anyone and become a friend and open your heart? Well, for the same reason, a trapeze artist grabs a bar and swings out into the air. There's a net. You know, when the trapeze artist does this, they are not planning to fall. But if they do, there is a big net under them to catch them. So they can take the risk because it's, it's not deadly. It's the same when it comes to friendships. It's the same when it comes to love. We need something bigger to trust in than that person. If, if all you have is that person, if all your trust is in that person, all your weight is on that person, then it is a risk that is too great for you to take. If that person fails you, then you go down with them. That's too great of a risk. You need a reason bigger than that person, and that bigger reason is your relationship with God. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 is a set of verses that, that I often pray and use to help me in this area. Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul writing this says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, that's us who follow Jesus Christ, 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So let's, let's just walk through this. This is just so helpful. It says, now that you're rooted and established in love, speaking of God's love. In other words, now that you've put God's love for you and your love for him back at the center of your life where it belongs, that's what you're trying to do, that you've, you're trying to root yourself in that truth. Then the next thing that needs to happen is you need to grasp how much it is that God actually loves you. His, in other words, his love for you needs to not just be a fact floating around your head. It needs to be something that, you know, if, if it had hands, it would grab a hold of you and get your attention. And it needs to expand in you. This isn't just a fact to know in your head. It's a knowing, as it says, that surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? This means it needs to become as real to you as gravity. You know, what's, what's the difference between a thought you have in your mind that you believe to be true and something that is real? Well, experience is the difference. Your thoughts are invisible, but reality is three-dimensional. It has width, it has length, it has height, and because of those dimensions, it has depth. God's love, in other words, isn't something you can just read about. You have to experience his love. How? You walk with him through the days of your life. It's kind of like um, bringing someone with you in the car when you walk to your work all the time. You walk with him and therefore you experience life with him. So you start your day with him. You wake up and you read some of his words out of the Bible. You try to apply them to your life that day, and you pray to God about your day. And then you close the Bible or you turn off your phone, and then you get in your car, and he goes with you. And the way he goes with you is you remember, you try to remember him throughout the day. Now, this is hard to do. I mean, I'm a pastor, and sometimes 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, oh, yeah, God. What's he up to? What's going on? You just have to bring him. You have to, as you walk with him through the day, that's how you begin to experience. And you encounter his love for you as you walk through the days. And what will happen over time as you do this, I mean, if you don't do it one day, that's okay. Then do it the next day. It's like eating. You know, if you skip lunch today, you don't say, oh, man, I'm failing at food. I guess I'm just not going to eat anymore. It's like, well, no. Eat dinner. You know, get some breakfast. So just keep working on it. What will happen is you'll be in the grasp that the love of Christ for you is the only sure thing in this life and that it really is the foundation of what you need. And as you grasp that, here's, here's what's interesting. Here's what Paul says is going to happen. You will begin to be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. So imagine your heart I think this is the image that Paul is painting. Imagine your heart is a container with measurements written on the side, marking the, the level of how much you are grasping God's love for you. you know, maybe there's like a, a quarter. You know, you, you, you're kind of quarter filled with, yeah, I think God loves me. Or maybe you're half filled. It's like, I'm, I'm really pretty convinced God loves me. Or you're three quarter. He, it, it's amazing how much he loves me. Or you're full. I'm just blown away that given my sinfulness, 
that God has the time of day for me, but he does. That's, that's captured my heart. So if your heart reads all the fullness of God, what's next? Overflow. The love God has for you is poured out into a genuine love for others. This is a prayer. See at the beginning? And I pray that you. This is a prayer. What this means is this is an ongoing daily thing. I often pray this. It, it's, this is not a lifetime pursuit. It's like in your 20s, you become aware of God's love, and by the time you're in your 30s, you're like at a third of an awareness, and then you get to half of awareness, and then maybe by the time you die, you're fully aware of how much God loves you. This is a daily exercise. This is why I pray this. God, help me to grasp your love for me and be captured by that so I can take the risk to love other people, because without that, it's not worth it if I can't grasp this. You know, if God wanted us just to be nice to each other, that would be a stretch in some relationships. But possible. But God's not after niceness. He wants us to love. He wants us to put the goals and interests of others above our own, to serve them. Our part in the process is these three. Purify our hearts. When conflict occurs, clear up the motives. Keep our conscience clear. Admit as soon as you know you've done something wrong, just, just do it. For me, this may be a little gross. For me, it's kind of like throwing up. You know what? Just get it over with. The sooner you get it over with, the better you'll feel. Now, just admit the truth. And then anchor your love in a sincere faith. Trust in God's love for you. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray for everyone in this room that you would help them grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love for them. No matter how far they've run from you, they cannot outrun your love. No matter how deep they've gone in their life, they can't plumb the depths of your love. And God, as, as we become aware of your love and are surrendered to your love, I pray that our hearts would be filled to overflowing so that we might actually love the people you've placed around us. Our Surgeon General has all kinds of ideas about how to address loneliness. But God, you designed us. You know our hearts. And so we look to you for how to bring hope and real friendships into this lonely world. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.